So today I've got a little bit of bonus content for you depolarized listeners. I was interviewed, it was actually kind of a mutual interview with this guy, Mike Erie. He has a show called The Vox Podcast, not to be confused with the Ezra Klein, like Vox Media Podcast. He is a former megachurch pastor down in Southern California, and he wanted to talk with me about Depolarize and Reconstruct, the new theology podcast that we just launched. I wanted to talk to him about some of the interesting models that they are trying out at their church. They have inclusive communion. They do not take a stance on homosexuality one way or the other, which is a very unique approach. And so they're kind of trying to depolarize evangelical church settings. You could call it something like that. And I thought that was really interesting. And so what we agreed to do is this kind of mutual interview. So it's here on my feed. It's also on their feed. It went up a few days ago on the Vox podcast with Mike Erie. That's E-R-R-E. So if you're not into faith, this one you should skip. Uh, it maybe would be better to post this on Reconstruct's feed than Depolarize, except that John was not part of the interview, and it just feels weird to do it on Reconstruct when it's just me, so it's here on Depolarize, but for those of you not so into the whole Christianity thing that we talk about sometimes, feel free to skip this. If you are interested in that, I think you'll find this conversation interesting. It starts with about a half hour of Mike interviewing me about various topics on on both podcasts and then it switches to me starting to ask them questions about what they're doing and that becomes kind of a interview slash dialogue about taking the Eucharist about um, gay inclusion or non-inclusion or trying this middle space that they're doing and other stuff like that so enjoy and uh, let me know what you think hit me on Twitter Dan K-O-C-H or email me, depolarizedpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you guys on Tuesday for a new full-length episode. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Coke from Seattle in a wood-paneled room with a large beard. Coming at you live. A San Francisco giant sweatshirt. My goodness. You, you, um, <laughs> badly eating a haircut. Oh, what's that like? And, and, and there's some sort of, are those antlers behind you? Yeah, is that, that what is was that? a birthday is... gift from my mom. My wife is not into it. She's a vegetarian, but they're just like from eBay. Like someone else killed a deer. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I think hanging. If you could just see the wood paneling, like there are three different sort of patterns yeah. of, of wood, and it just says, "If Seattle were a house, it would look a lot like that." Yeah, it's I my think. studio. Yeah, what, what's it. the scent that it, that permeates that room with such fine looking wood? Musk. You know, I actually this it is, is a, a little bit uh, embarrassing, but I, I've kind of gotten into burning incense recently, and <laughs> I like the um, patchouli, the incensio de Santa Fe, which is like wood. It's like pressed wood or like um, particle board, basically that they infuse with like different wood scents so it actually smells like wood smoke it's so dumb <laughs> oh my it's goodness. so awesome and like such a caricature yeah yes perfect <laughs> perfect so so we're doing something interesting dan um is recording this for his podcast um we're recording this for ours but dan is uh someone we've been excited to talk about for several months now he launched a podcast called depolarize and that was just and 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 that was 
um, do the election, correct? Yeah, I mean, as you it saw what was a, happening. Yeah, maybe like a month before the election or something like that. Tell us, give us a little bit. I mean, that's where we heard Michael Ware. Yep. And so we had him on our show because we oh, heard him on your show. He's the best. And right. So what was the what was the impetus behind uh, the depolarized thing? Yeah. So um, I'll I'll back up before I started the podcast for a couple years now. I have been increasingly, um, I would say, enjoying posting questions or like a little bit controversial topics on my personal Facebook. And then I found that I enjoyed and had some skill for like moderating the comments section. And oh, wow. um, I, I think that what I was doing was I was asking serious questions and I was kind of open to either side giving good reasons. And I just was sort of trying to keep people from getting, you know, at each other's necks and um, sort of like increasingly people who would see me who hadn't seen me in a little while would mention that like they would it's the thing that they would mention like at church or something like hey i really appreciate you know your the political conversations on your facebook it's such a breath of fresh air that that nobody is calling names and stuff and and i was pretty active in kind of creating that culture just just like personally you know just like i was not working and doing that instead um throughout the day <laughs> And then uh, I, when when Trump was in the general election, I was like, I I should do something. I don't yeah. want to. I will, you know, at the time I was, I was very concerned about him becoming president. Um, there's a I have sort of modified views now that he's been president for a while, um, but at the time I was like very afraid, um, and I was like, I got to do something. So I started the show, or I was like, I want to start a show. Then I talked to a couple of my friends who know me well and, and who we, we talk about politics on a on a text thread. I have three really, really smart buddies. One of them's in PR. One of them is just a political junkie. He's a, he works at a genetics company. And one of them is a lawyer who used to work for the Department of Justice in San Francisco. Wow. So it's a pretty amazing <laughs> – and I'm, yeah, I'm, the, I'm the total amateur uh, comparatively. So uh, I, I, was, I talked with them throughout the course of a day. And basically realized, okay, this is what I can do. This is the thing I could offer is creating this sort of middle, this safe middle ground uh, for people. And and that was, and I thought that that would help, you know, my little part in like not getting Trump elected because I thought, well, if people are really willing to listen to their side, then they won't vote for Trump. I think that was a little naive. I think what I have learned since is I have a much more robust and nuanced view of like human psychology and the way that we create and, and make arguments and, and where, where rational and political arguments fit in, in our cognitive process and, and how they connect to our identities. And, um, so and actually, did you be one of my three friends? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After sure, that, man. I'm like, wow. Add me on to your, to your thread. So yeah. I, um, so I would say it started as a way to kind of stop Trump in my own little way, not that I thought I could really move the needle, but it ended up more as a way of, I would say more often than not now, I am trying to critique the left, which is my own political side, in um, encouraging them to attempt empathy and compassion for the right. It's not the only thing I do. I have guests critique both sides, almost always, uh, depending on the topic. But I would say, if anything, I, I, I would say my main goal now or my, what I end up doing is 
talk speaking to my own people, roughly speaking on the left, and and saying, hey, uh, we have confirmation bias as well. We didn't criticize Obama because we liked him. You know, I didn't because I liked him. And that's exactly what I'm accusing Trump voters of doing is not criticizing Trump because they like him. So, you know, it it doesn't mean that I agree with Trump. I, I think he will probably go down as one of the least effectual, most inept presidents in U.S. history, if not if not supremely damaging. Um, but at the same time, I need to check my own biases and I need to apply the same criticism to myself and my own tribe as I want to um, apply to the other side. Yep. So it's this really cool middle ground where um, what you did on your Facebook, I didn't know about the Facebook story, but I, the podcast really represents that. So so great job. And then you just launched something um, called Reconstruct. And yeah. uh, we just did a, we, we uh, um, had just did a, uh, we started a reconstruction conversation. Andy then said, hey, oh man, the depolarized guys are doing a reconstruct conversation. And yeah. we're like, dang. <laughs> um, so, so what was that? What was that journey like? Because you were involved with Bad Christian, right? Which is very well known in the, yeah. in the podcast space. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah, so I had been on so Reconstruct, uh, which is co-hosted by my friend John Rains, and is kind of our our dual brainchild. Um, Does he live in Seattle? He lives that's in a great Seattle. name. Yeah, that's a and, great name uh, for him. We, <laughs> yeah, Rains. Yeah, he's also from California. But um, <laughs> so we had decided to do Reconstruct actually before I I started Depolarize. Depolarize was the oh. kind of thing that I could sort of whip together a, a sixty minute conversation pretty quickly. Reconstruct is is more methodical. And so we had already been working on it. And that idea came... Well, so I had been on Bad Christian as a guest. Uh, probably... I've probably been on like eight, eight, or, eight or ten times. And then recently I just did four episodes of Break It Down, with, which is Matt Carter's solo show. So maybe 12, 13 times. And... A lot of times people would say, you know, you should do your own theology podcast or whatever. So I was kind of thinking about that. But then John came to me with the idea of, yeah, but you and I disagree. And yet we play in a band together at the time we were playing in Pacific Gold together. And we hang out all the time. We have these bonfires. Every single time we have a bonfire with our friends, we end up drinking beer and talking theology till 2 a.m. And a bunch of people end up listening and like gathering around us. Uh, because we're both, we don't leave a lot of room for other people in the conversation. That's probably (laughs) why they're listening and not talking our fault. But so then we were like, yeah, it's kind of thinking about that. Like that's unique. Uh, What would it be? And so we really, we spent a couple months meeting pretty regularly and kind of hammering out what we wanted to do differently. You know, we both listened to the liturgists. Um, we had both listened to a lot of bad Christian and ask science Mike, um, and we were just kind of trying to think, you know, what's what's something unique we can bring? And so, you know, broadly speaking, the uniqueness is uh, we're not stopping at deconstruction. We're not just stopping at doubt. Um, and we're also not just stopping with, well, here's what a bunch of like leftist deconstruction, deconstructed Christians believe. Um, which, you know, I think right now is kind of where liturgists is at. It, they... Mike and Mike are very much on the same page. They're they're far left theologically. I I really I basically I agree with most of what they believe. Um, but we wanted to kind of, and I think that they're serving a different population. So our 
our ideal listener is a person who has done a lot of deconstruction, who has had a lot of doubt, asked a lot of questions, and but wants faith again, and um, or a new kind of it, or you know whatever wants to reapproach it. That's sort of like our ideal listener, and then there's of course people earlier or later in that process that will find it interesting or just anybody who likes theology, but it's kind of, we want it like, so we had Peter ends on and he's known for teaching that the Bible is not inerrant. That's a view that I share. I think it's not inerrant, but for reconstruct, what we want to talk with ends about is, so what is the Bible? Give us a positive argument. Don't just tell us what it's not. And not that he's, you know, I think he's been right to talk about it in his academic and popular space to do what he's done. But for our purposes, it's like, great. So if I agree with you on that, where do I go from there? How do I, how do I start reading the Bible again? How do I think about it? How do I let it speak to me? Right. Yeah. Right. And that, and one of the things I, I listened in on and uh, thought were fascinating were the three guiding values that are guiding this. Yeah. Because uh, first of all, I mean, we, we share the same, you know, we love permission to give people permission for, oh, yeah. for deconstruction. That is huge. Yeah. Um, and, and sorely needed. Um, but we're, we same this, we share the same dissatisfaction with just stopping there. Yeah. Um, you can't build a life on that. And so, um, uh, I thought your guiding principles were interesting because it's kind of an entrance into how do you do reconstruction? Deconstruction's easy. Um, at least once you're given permission to do it, um, reconstruction, those are different things. So share those, uh, if you would tell us a little bit about what those mean and how they're going to flesh out in, uh, in the space you're, you're taking up. Yeah. So, um, John and I spent a bunch of time on this and, and we kind of came to three, three guiding principles, which are, uh, meaningful unity, critical charity and serious theology. And so I'll just go through those one at a time. So the first one is meaningful unity. Another way of saying this is like ecumenism or ecumenicalism. Um, We, you know, Bonhoeffer has this thing, cheap grace versus costly grace. And we think that there's kind of a similar difference between like cheap ecumenicalism and, and like true ecumenicalism. For those who don't know what that means, it means like all the different denominations and sort of like branches of the Christian church worldwide um, coming together in some sort of a way. So we want to have meaningful unity, which means we both, we simultaneously acknowledge that we disagree and we also affirm our connectedness as Christians. So a big thing about our show is, you know, when we do a Q and a episode, like for instance, episode three is what must one believe to be saved? We both answer the same question and we answer it differently. And we interview each other and we try and tease out what the other person is really getting at because we think that both of our answers are options. Like Christians could agree with John or me. They could be and somewhere John, in between. And John's coming from a different theological place. Yeah. So entirely. Yeah. Broadly speaking, like I'm kind of like a progressive on my way into the Catholic church as like a leftist Catholic <laughs> It's weird. Um, And John is like reformed. I would say if you wanted to, he's like a compassionate reformed. I would not call him a conservative reformed Christian. I would call him like a traditional reformed Christian, like Calvin, but not Piper, you know, maybe something like that for people who know those names. Um, He's more like a Tim Keller um, 
Van yeah. Van Hooser for those of you who are nerds, that kind of a guy. <laughs> um, yeah, and and I'm more like a. I don't know. My favorite theologians, just that I'm, I'm not as well versed in theology as John is, but like the um, the Vatican II guys of of the middle 20th century, like Karl Rahner and Edward Skilabex, and um, a lot of C.S. Lewis. Actually, his views are are actually quite out of step with current American evangelicalism. But we just we we, po- we love his quotes. Though. We poach the we quotes. Love his quotes. <laughs> yeah, we poach the quotes of, of Lewis. But actually, he was he was pretty ecumenical and open minded. Um, and pretty open to, I don't know. Anyways. Yeah. So yeah. meaningful unity is just like, there are a lot of kinds of Christians and it's stupid to say that your kind of Christianity is the only available option. It's just, it's patently absurd on just by the numbers. Um, I love that you said that you, you're ch- attempting to see Christianity, not as a philosophy, not as a theology, but as a family. Yeah. And that is, and that is how you differentiate between or, or are able to sit at the kitchen table with somebody that you disagree with, but there's something that trumps that disagreement. And I use the word trumps carefully. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, one way you could put it is um, we think that our identity as members of the body of Christ is logically prior to our identity in whatever denomination or with whatever theological views we hold. Right. And uh, actually, if you, if you think that, the way you understand predestination or something or the way you understand the end times or baptism or hell is more important than being an adopted and loved child of God, then I think you not only have a psychological problem, but you have like a rational problem. Um, well, so takes one to know one. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of psychological and rational problems. <laughs> so the second, uh, the second, principle is critical charity and this is just basically like aristotelian logic um you just you don't build up straw men of the other person's argument or or someone you disagree with you you uh you're gonna you're gonna face new ideas you're gonna hear things that make you uncomfortable and you have to fight the urge to be defensive about that in scientific terms you have to like learn to quiet down your amygdala and like let your prefrontal cortex do its thing Thank um, you, Science Dan. <laughs> yeah. I think I stole all those terms from Science Mike. Yes. Um, yes. So, you you know, that, that, that takes a certain amount of maturity, and it's something that we're always working on. Um, so that one's, that one's pretty simple. Don't make a straw man. Like, hear people out, listen to their story, have compassion, uh, attempt to hear them clearly. I also liked, uh, I'm quoting you back to yourself because you're missing some really good stuff that you've said. Okay. Um, No, no. Have I said it? (laughs) I love it. Well, you just said you want to be both open and discerning about new ideas. Mm -hmm. So you hit the open, uh, but what's the discerning bit? I I love trying to hold those two in tension. Well, I think that it's just um, people, and I think that this is especially true, so I think you could you could frame this sort of in terms of right and left. People on the right have a harder time being open. Generally speaking, a, a naturally conservative person will have a hard time um, accepting a new idea. I think that's just sort of like the definition of conservatism is to conserve something good that already exists. And people who are naturally liberal will tend to have a harder time uh, being critical. They will... They will willingly open their arms to the stranger and to anyone who has a story that that might um, in which they might be a victim of some sort, and they will subsume 
their critical evaluation to their compassion. And uh, so we just kind of want to find that line in the middle. Or He's that. depolarizing. He depolarized yeah. right there. You know, th there really is there. I, I'm figuring out that there's so much connection between the two, the two Absolutely. shows in terms of the way I think about this stuff. Um, but I, yeah, that's, that's one way of saying it. And of course that doesn't mean every conservative, every liberal. I just mean, if you're tried and true liberal, you're, you're not going to have a hard time being open to ideas. In fact, you're probably like my, uh, my transsexual Muslim, you know, arts teacher <laughs> <laughs> showed me the light or whatever. I mean, like that's right. the kind of thing that a true liberal would be like, hell yeah, you know? And then a conservative would be like, I don't know how to talk to that person, but you know, they need to learn to be open and they, and they are, are critical naturally. So that's one way of thinking about it, but you could kind yep. of, there's other ways. Yep. So that's the second. Nice. And then the third one is serious theology, which just basically means, um, that's more like a, that's probably more a, f a factor of intensity than it is like a, a value or a quality. We, oh. we just want to actually get to the bottom of questions. And so for instance, something that we don't want is just like a bunch of deconstructing Christians patting themselves on the back for, for questioning the man and the empire all the time. Um, we also don't want a bunch of, um, dogmatic conservative Christians patting themselves on the back for man sure lucked out that we have all the right answers and are going, going to heaven with, you know, jewels galore in our crowns. And man, those poor sinners who don't, who don't read revelation, right. You know, so it's, we don't want to be either of those. We, we want to, we want to use our reason as much as we can to identify, like separate out discrete issues and identify the real, question at hand on any given topic yes mm -hmm. so what's the plan going forward how do you how do you see you i love the ends example i think that's are you going to be do, doing primarily interview shows you're going to be doing a bit of both how's that how's that going to play out yeah we have so we have three episode types two of them have guests um okay so if we have a guest on we will either interview them on something that they know a lot about so with ends we asked him what's the bible for um we have Science Mike, uh, this upcoming episode, and that's the other kind of, ep of, ep of episode where he tells his story of deconstruction and reconstruction. Right. So we want to give examples of people turning the corner. Oh, that's good. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And then the third kind of episode is like a Q&A thing where John and I will each answer the same question or two questions or however long it takes to get to a full episode. And that's the one where we, we yeah. kind of dive into a topic um, on our own but we show this difference of opinion and, and we kind of hash it out a bit. So what's the goal of reconstruction in general? Yep. Oh, the goal of reconstruction is probably something like, um, if you believe that God exists, uh, it sure seems like you should make sure you have a relationship with him. And so even if you've had to deconstruct for very legitimate reasons, like I, I believe my deconstruction has been entirely legitimate that um, was not a result of sin in any way. I still want, I, I still lost ways of sort of like knowingly communing with God. And, you know, by losing that language or by losing those practices or those um, habits, right? I then, that was a stream through which I could go 
to have a relationship with God. And so reconstruction would be to go, all right, you know, I, I needed to go through this period of, of pain and doubt and whatever. Um, but like, it, it doesn't mean that I don't still want to be with God and to be in relationship with him. Um, and, and, uh, so that's what reconstruction is. I mean, it's, it. it's pretty simple. Right. Um, even to someone who's more skeptical about whether or not reconstruction is possible, if they've really deconstructed and they are very, sort of very unsure that anything could happen, you could still say, um, it's worth a shot. I mean, it's, it's still worth, you know, like the, the person I believe the least is someone who says, yeah, you know, I went through a lot of deconstruction and I just realized that like faith is all bull crap. I'm like, Oh, interesting. Like, <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Because almost all of our heroes in human history have been religious people. So that, that seems like a, that seems like a smug claim. And so, um, and, and immature, I think, um, which doesn't mean that it's easy to reconstruct, but it, it sure seems right. worth doing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's really good. What role does the church have? I mean, what part of what we've been kind of tinkering with is we started a church out of a, a podcast yeah. uh, because we felt like the church had a role, but the church has also been a trigger for a lot of deconstruction. Right. And so wh- where do you see that? Where do you see that fitting in? Well, you know, I kind of want to, I have, I have these few questions here that I want to ask you, and I think this might be a, a way to turn one around. Um, I was talking with... <laughs> I was, I want to, I'd like to answer your question with a question. Um, well, Ooh, I'll, I'll just say for me, so I was speaking with Andy um, yesterday and we were just kind of doing some, some, I was getting some more background information so I could know what I'd like to ask you about. And, and he mentioned that your guys' church is Eucharist centered. That was the term that he used. Yeah. And, you like two word things. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I, I'm all about hyphens. Cent- centeredly. Um, so, so I, for me, uh, as someone who's kind of moving toward the Catholic Church, and I've been attending a liturgical church for eight years now, um, a Presbyterian church, and um, for me, the, the sacraments really are becoming increasingly central to, to the way that I understand my faith. And yeah. so that's one answer would be, you know, sacraments can't happen alone. The sacraments... Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think through them. I don't think any of them happen alone. Anointing of the sick, marriage, Eucharist, confession. These are all, there's probably more. Uh, baptism. None of these are, none of these are done alone. Um, right. And I think that there's some good thinking behind that or design or yeah. whatever you want to call yeah. it. Yeah. So yeah. I think about it that way. Yeah. So That's good. you could think sacraments or you could just say um, human beings, like if you want a more kind of secular approved answer, Human beings are pack animals. Like we are tribal pack animals. We uh, survived as a species because we could band together and hunt big game. Um, We have done everything in tribes since we came on the earth's scene. And even if you don't believe in evolution, uh, it's obviously true. We're tribal sports teams, um, political parties, family clans, you know, like Hatfields and McCoys and Kentucky and, uh, Catholics and politics. Protestants and Irish. Yeah. Politics. I mean, um, in Irish in Ireland. Uh, <laughs> so like you just no human endeavor really worth doing is done alone. And that's kind of contrary to the frontier myth of America, America. But I, I think that, um, 
So I would say that, but now let me turn it into a question. Why, <laughs> what do you guys mean by your, your service is Eucharist centered? Like, what does that actually mean? And then why do you make it that way? Yeah. Ooh. Um, well, partially for the reasons you've already articulated. Um, I come out of a megachurch, evangelical, sermon-centered, teaching-focused um, uh, subculture. Yeah. And so I've always been the, the, the teacher and the service pretty much is a setup and a response to the teaching. And... When we started podcasting, we, you know, we realized uh, a church I was just at, you know, a couple of years ago was $9 million budget, 120 employees, 20 acres of land. And we'd probably reach um, 9,000 different people a month. You know, it's a big big church. Um, We started podcasting. And, you know, when you're, when you're seeing 40 or 50,000 downloads a month and it's free, um, <laughs> you, you realize yeah. if church is only an informational dispensation system, then why in the world would you invest in land, invest in, in employees, invest in programs? Because the podcasting, it's, it's, it's what Uber's done. It's what Airbnb has done, right? right? We're flipping the, the classroom completely. So if, if you take the importance of the teaching event out of a church service, which is what the question we were asking, what do you have? And we, you have the, you have liturgy, you have the work of the people in response. And so we, we do Q and A as part of our services. We do, uh, kind of raw storytelling. We don't not know pretty red bows, at least, uh, at least in the stories we tell, um, we do a bit of teaching, but that teaching is to set up Eucharist. We see that we see the point of the service is the is the taking the bread and the cup together, and then we have other we have a prayer we have prayer stations. Okay, and, why though? Why is that? Why is taking the Eucharist the center? Because we're trying to build a community. Uh, like Jesus did, where you can have a tax collector and you can have a zealot, and they're they're, they're if you're only if you're only locating unity in preference, one you know I like yeah. this teacher. Or affinity, right? I, this this church is just like me, which is traditionally how my subculture's done it. Yep. Um, it, it cannot withstand the the cultural conversations that are being had around it. Yeah. You can't have so so. Our goal is to have affirming Christians and non-affirming Christians take the bread and the cup together. Our our goal is to have Trump lovers and Trump haters take the bread and the cup together. Our goal is to have. Um, People who are as far left and as far right politically or economically or whatever take the bread and the cup. And that's the only thing big enough to handle those differences in our culture. Yeah. Teaching's not big enough. Affinity's not big enough. Uh, preferences aren't big enough. And so, so that was, I mean, that was the big reason was um, it, it, none of the traditions I've come out of ever did Eucharist every, every week. It was always a tiny bit of juice and a, in a you know, tic tac size cracker. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, well, let's not too. forget that this was something Jesus did. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. So, so, so I that love was that answer. Pr- that's, that's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's been really my experience. Like, you know, when I go to mass, uh, even in Seattle, which is not a very diverse city, as far as American cities go, like it's always racially diverse. It's always a diverse number of age groups and everybody, right. the, the homily is just not the point on a right. weekday mass. It's five minutes long on Sunday. It's 12 minutes. And then you wow. spend 20 minutes on the Eucharist. I mean, Right. So you, it's all everyone preparing themselves for the same thing, going up, taking it together. A little Filipino w- old woman is like handing me the wine or whatever. You yep, know, like yep, yep. 
Like it's right. it. You can't escape it. It's like baked in that this is yeah. not about. Oh, everyone here also gets their haircut at the cool barbershop right. and like drinks at the same bars with me. Right. It can exactly. never be about that because they're not cool. The people right. you're sitting next to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nope. Exactly. And so we felt like Eucharist was the only thing big enough, you know, and, and because we built the yeah. whole church around table fellowship, the idea of table fellowship. So we celebrate table in three ways. We celebrate table corporately. Um, via communion, we do these things called table fellowships that are just dinner, dinner and conversation. We do those in kind of in lieu of small groups okay. and Bible studies. Um, and, uh, and then our encouragement always is that you're opening your personal table, your personal table up to, um, your friends, your neighbors, people not like you. So for us, it's part of an even bigger picture of Jesus welcoming the outcast and the stranger, Jesus eating at a religious person's house. I mean, it captures, we think, one of the most distinctive parts of American, or distinctive parts of Jesus' work that is different than what the American church sort of represents and operates in. Right, like that, I mean, when that Heineken commercial recently dropped, for Did us, you see we that? were like, this is the exact picture of what we're talking about. I didn't but, watch it, no. I, um, okay. I I enjoyed watching the Pepsi ad many times, <laughs> <laughs> replaying it for friends with commentary, but I oh, didn't watch man. the Heineken one. Um, yeah. So that, that makes me think about something that I've been thinking about a lot, and I wonder what you think about it. I'm trying to, in my mind, tie tie this all into identity, because I think both in like identity politics is a, is a big yeah. catchphrase these days. Like, which in case people don't know what that is, it's like primarily you're a white man or primarily yeah. you are a person of color. You are a trans person. Um, and then sort of mainly grouping people and, and judging them based on their category. And, um, I've been thinking a lot about Christian identity and what does Christian identity mean? And so what I was thinking of when you were talking is let's say I go to my, um, you know, suburban Boise sort of white bread mega church. Okay. And everyone around me like lives in, uh, almost everyone who goes there lives in sort of planned communities with yards and, and lawns and SUVs and everybody is white and um, everybody shares the view of baptism and all, all these views. Right. And, and we're not gay affirming. I'm just kind of picking a head, uh, an example out of my head. Yeah. Then right. you could legitimate if you were a sociologist, you could go into that setting and you could do some testing. And I bet you would find that people's identity was partially shaped by all those things that they had in common. Right. Now, if you have instead a church full of people of diverse views and socioeconomic backgrounds and races and whatever, and if you try and make the Eucharist the center, then what I think has to happen, what ends up happening is the message you give your congregants is that your identity is in the Eucharist, your identity is not in your shared cultural norms or whatever. Exactly, exactly. And you can frame that any number of different ways. One of the things we try to say all the time is um, this, the, the church should be a picture of the new humanity, right? And Paul's use of that phrase was in the context of people who have nothing else in common but this Jesus. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, a, a, a small group of committed, same stage in life, white people, married couples with young kids is beautiful and helpful, but that's not the new, human, new humanity. 
Yeah. So, so I absolutely agree uh, with what you're saying. And, you know, you can frame it in terms of none of us come worthy. You know, this is where all of our other identities are relativized mm-hmm. and subsumed under the identity of Christ uh, in us, through us, with us. It's also It also gives us the great opportunity to be reminded of our job description as followers of Jesus were to reenact this in, in the death to selves and being broken and poured out, you know, for the sake of, of others as well. And so yeah. it, it gives us a lot of, you know, it's, it's like, like you spending 20 minutes on it. There's a lot to say there. Um, you can spend yeah. 52 weeks a year just talking about what this means and what this is and how this uh, affects us. And so yeah. I totally, totally think that is a, um, a, a good point in, um, in why we would do it. So I'll add that to my future answers. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Solid. I wonder what you think when people ask me, this is what I say, if people ask me, why does it matter to have the Eucharist at the center of the service? And my kind of go-to answer is a little more abstract. And it's that I think that the self-giving, self-sacrificial love of God is at the center of the universe. Come on. And that is most clearly shown in the in Christ's death basically, uh which the Eucharist is is the is the <laughs> sacrament that he sets yeah. up for that, right? right? He's about right. to willingly accept it. You know, it, during Catholic Mass, it's like, you know, he willingly uh accepted his passion and um so I just kind of think that having the Eucharist at the middle of a service is a is a representative of the actual way the universe is. And I like so I like to be reminded and it's co- sort of like at what point in my life will I stop being needing to be reminded that self-sacrificial love is at the center of everything? Probably never. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And for me once a month is certainly not enough to be reminded of that. And uh yeah, so yeah. that's I don't know, what do you yeah. think about that? Does that jive? Oh, I mean I that drives with me. I mean, I it, it, it. I think both both concepts intersect rather beautifully. Yeah. You know, there, there's a lot of us who come come through Eucharist. I mean, that's kind of how I grew up in communion. Now, it's funny as I think about it. I mean, the the small church I grew up in, we did actually do Eucharist and communion every single weekend. The funny thing was, I mean, it was like, but church was like three hours long. You yeah. know, it was like there was a <laughs> you know a teaching for communion and then an additional like you know teaching after the fact, and that's where they split the church and then kids would go off and do their thing and and that kind of thing there so it's a funny way like i constantly grew up with you know hinged on the symbolism of communion kind of in my regular and and daily sweeper yeah street sweeper sorry Uh, that's okay that yeah of of life and so but i think i've always carried the heavy symbolism like really hinging on exactly what you said just the atonement of life of this is what jesus did and this is just really fascinating sacrament to really engage with that and be reminded and remembered of that and yeah i think it it deeply affects the the way you walk through life when you have more of that consistent reminder of like that's if that's truly a picture of how to walk as a, a follower to be that self-sacrificial to be that um yeah, to be that humble but also be that intentional you know that god like had a plan and god had you know yeah something going on there and to realize no god had a plan in working through that and some may you know more metaphorically look at you know the sacrifice and how it then backbones into old testament and all of the priestly you know uh, things that they did but i'm i'm actually always struck by you know the the thousands of years of old testament you know tradition and oral communication about what sacrifice would end up looking like and then how Jesus, uh, you see this incredible alignment and picture of that thing. So, I mean, to me, I, I, I personally always stand in awe of, I think the, the circumstantial alignment of God's plan and what actually took place here on earth. And so I, to me, I connect with that very large Cosmo 
idea of it. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, um, you know, I like how you say that self-giving love is at the center of the universe. It's very Rob Bell-esque. Oh, um, is it? Oh, yes. I better be careful. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, I don't want to get farewelled no. by John Piper. Oh, I know. Well, it's only a matter of time. Think, yeah, exactly. It's only a matter of followers, I should say. If I just get <laughs> enough followers, I'll get that tweet. We, um, uh, so one of the, I, I'd put that just a little differently, I, I, although... To me, Francis Chan had this great line once I heard him speaking and he said, you know, if, if you're at a church and you hear more about the pastor than you do about Jesus, you're probably at the wrong church. And, yeah, that's awesome. and I know that's, yeah, I mean, he's, he's just the, the king of those sort of drop the mic one liner. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I was trying to think of a way of how do you put Jesus at the center uh, of the service and uh, not, you know, my teaching or someone's worship or whatever. And so, you know, we realized, well, we always want to teach about Jesus. So we're always going to, you know, be in the Gospels. We're not going to go to Paul. We're just going to stay in, in oh, Jesus. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we'll do other stuff on the podcast. And, you know, I mean, Tim Keller's got some great stuff and N.T. Wright's got some great stuff. So if you're hungry for that and, and, and where Paul and Jesus intersect, of course, but we're just going to be marinating in Jesus and how beautiful he is. And um, because we believe, you know, we're preaching to a parade. You're not preaching to the same audience every time. Huh. Um, and, yeah. and so, so we also wanted to, um, and Eucharist obviously gives you the opportunity to have that conversation, to be good news people, to, to remind us of all the things, right, that, that, that Jesus reminds us of through a sacrifice. So for me, that's the way we put Jesus at the center, is all of a sudden, all the other conversation stops about whether I liked it, whether I didn't like it, was that song good or not good. Now it's... Oh, now we're doing something that is a huge reminder that it's not about us and it's not right. about anything else that's going on here. Right. Yeah. So, so when I get asked that, I, I'm, I'm, I take that self-giving love and just attach, you know, the Jesus name to it and go, man, he's, he's the whole thing. Yeah. And you know, there's, I wonder what you guys think about this too, in the context of deconstruction and reconstruction. I think the thing about Eucharist too is it's it's tremendously flexible because it is an activity and it yeah. is not mm-hmm. I mean good. there are sort of doctrines attached to it but it right. is like an aesthetic activity and I think about like think about someone who's like super deconstructed and they they're like yeah probably no resurrection um you know barely even like a theist of any sort just simply the Eucharist is a reminder that God suffers. God is not mm. out there totally separate from us. He feels pain. He felt yep. pain. Even if it's like, if that's all you can do at this point in your life, you can just sit there and meditate on a God who suffers in some way that can change someone's life. I mean, Absolutely. that yeah. can be a bridge back to something more um, or not, or if it's all they can ever do, if it's all anybody could ever do is like sit there once a week and be reminded that like the God that they kind of believe in suffers alongside with them. Like that is so valuable. Um, <laughs> yeah. and well, but true. we've often, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, please no, that's continue. It. Yeah, I'm done. I was just going to say so often in the, in, in the great irony in my tradition is that we've restricted communion to only those who are worthy of it. You know, so, so we, you know, we, we have to warn non-Christians. Um, we've got to, I mean, I literally sat in a pass, or sat in a, a church service 
Um, and the pastor said, you got to get cleaned up first. And, you know, I mean, I'm hmm. just about ready to throw a fit, right? So we practice open communion, which is very controversial in our subculture. Yeah. Um, uh, although we see no biblical warrant for, you know, excluding anybody, uh, except in Paul's particular cir- circumstance where rich Christians were eating separately from poor Christians. That's what he condemns. And he doesn't warn non-Christians from taking communion. He warns Christians Interesting. from taking communion. So it was a social, it was a justice issue that he was yeah. addressing there. So all that mm. is to say, we the, the other reason we take Eucharist is because it, it, for us, not for everybody, but for us, it embodies the wide open call to, to share a table with Jesus, right? It's the, it's the tax collector, prostitute, you know, Pharisee, all are welcome at the table kind of thing. And um, I think for a lot of people raised in, you know, the kind of evangelical environments like myself, communion was this great thing that you had to uh you had to get cleaned up for and so your point about the deconstructed person sitting there you know do they have the right amount of faith and doctrine and obedience to come up and 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 at what point would you say okay um they're good enough um i just i i i think the eucharist um and again i mean catholic uh, theologians would disagree and some of my own tribe would hugely disagree with some of these things um, but I think it, it gives people the opportunity to come with whatever faith they're bringing and be received at the table. Yeah. And so, so I think that embodies something that nothing else does in our church practices. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know yet. I don't know yet how I feel about, cause you know, I am, I am I kind know. of veering Catholic and, but, and that's one of the things I struggle with is like open, you know, the open table of the Episcopal church, which is like any Christian, um, right. you know, come up. I, I'm, I am very much more drawn toward that line of thinking, but I'm just kind of, I'm withholding yeah. judgment on it for the time being. L- I want to ask you about, um, you mentioned this, having people who are affirming and non-affirming, I assume you mean of gay marriage or yes. of, of, uh, monogamous homosexual unions or whatever. Correct. Um, I have always thought that that would be impossible. And let me just sort of say why. And then I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Okay. My thoughts have been that you can't have a church that rides the line between affirming and non-affirming because the people who are non-affirming would like, because to me, it seems like um, really the, the question of, of homosexual sex or gay marriage really gets to the core of the Bible. Uh, is it inerrant, basically? Um, do we have to find a way to make sense of everything that Paul believed? Or do we not have to do that because of reasons X, Y, and Z? Um, that That's my sort of take on it, yeah. um, just from my own study. And uh, so therefore, if that's true, then you have the people who are not affirming are like, Look, I mean, I love what you're trying to do, Mike. It's great that you want to have an open thing. And yes, we're all members of the body of Christ even, but like I believe the Bible is inerrant. And so I want to be somewhere where people believe that. And then on the other hand, if you are affirming or especially if you're gay, you're you're just like if you could choose between a church that totally is open to you and affirms you and a church where you know, the pastor maybe does, he doesn't really say, exactly. and half yeah. the people there don't like, 
I if I were gay, I think I would just totally be an Episcopal, like no question. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, as long as obviously they're individuals and maybe they don't like other things about the Episcopal Church, but you know, I, I would think that I would want to just go somewhere that I was accepted. And so when Andy mentioned that you guys tried to do this, and then you mentioned it here on the inter- in the interview, I that really uh, is fascinating to me. So I, I kind of want to hear you respond yeah. to that and, and see talk about how you do it. Yeah, well, we spent, uh, we've done a lot of work on it on our podcast. So we've spent um, a lot of time trying to do the depolarized thing, right? If Jesus would come... Yeah. And speak to us about this. He would confront both sides of the issue. What would he confront? Um, nobody, nobody walks into the presence of Jesus and um, doesn't come out with with some renewal. You know, some piece of this needs to change. Some awakening. Um, yeah, Anthony it, Bloom, the Orthodox priest, yep. writes that every in every encounter with the real God is simultaneously a judgment. Of and, some sort. and a love fest. Yeah, and he doesn't mean judgment <laughs> like, uh, you know, Jonathan Edwards' fire and brimstone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He just okay, means good. like, you. he's talking about prayer. He's talking about contemplative prayer. And he's like, you know, you can't go into God's presence and not expect to like have some aspect of you be confronted with something bigger and better mm. and more exactly. just. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Per- That's totally. so well Does said. not necessarily assume the rightness or wrongness of God of homosexual sex, but the point right. just being something right. Love will challenge you. However you want to phrase it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so love, what we yeah. tell, what we tell people is we're never going to be an affirming church. We're never going to be a non-affirming church. We're not in that business. We're in the business of putting Jesus at the center and allowing him to order the sanctification of his followers. So everybody hates you then. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's absolutely true. Sides, We've got plenty yeah. of examples. But, yeah. but here's, the, here's the fascinating thing. So yes, I get emails and articles and um, all sorts of things from both sides. We've had, um, but, but we've had a significant number of people who are either affirming or gay themselves say that we're glad you're not an affirming church Interesting. because a lot of affirming churches make their affirmingness the point of the church. And what yeah. they were interested in was something that pointed to Jesus and that, and, and that relativized that issue. So to me, the analogy I always draw is divorce, right? Jesus speaks clearly on divorce. And what the American church did with divorce is they just created a kind of don't ask, don't tell policy. Yep. And, and we just don't, we don't deal with it. Um, uh, and I thought, well, that hypocrisy, of course, needs to be repented of. So if we're going to, if we're going to go after, we're going to go after gay folks, then you've got to be consistent in all the other, all your other sexual ethic practices, disciplines, leadership, not leadership, and nobody is. The only thing that was consistent was this kind of don't ask, don't tell sort of policy in large churches because it's too big to manage. And tons of divorced, like elders and deacons, absolutely. like everywhere yeah. you look. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Yeah. Which should and have totally disqualified them from Paul's letters. Yes, yes. Yeah. And yeah. and in some conservative churches, that's been true. But in my yeah. tribe, that, that's not as true. Or maybe it's true for a very narrow band of people. Yeah. Um, it strikes me really quickly that you could go two ways with that. One yep. way is what sounds like you're saying, which is you can go the way of consistency. And yep. sticking with the text. And the other way is you could go uh, the way of, you know what? The fact that we've never done this on divorce or women speaking aloud in church or head coverings is actually, actually points to a larger 
uh, pattern or truth that yes. in fact the Bible is not inerrant and we're sort of reading it wrong. Um, and there's probably well, I some, think you can say yeah. I think you can say you're reading it wrong and still say it's inspired. I'm not saying I it's think, not inspired. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, you're I think not using a, those. Yeah, I don't use inerrant and inspired as synonyms. I think they're definitely okay. different. Um, okay. For instance, even the Catholic, Episcopal, and Eastern Orthodox churches all would define inerrancy as uh, the infallibility, which is that the Bible always accomplishes its aims as relates yeah. to salvation of a soul. Yeah. Um, mm. Which is very different than like the Chicago statement of inerrancy. Totally. For instance. Totally. So I, yes. I, it strikes me though, you can go two ways. So the way that I tend to go is like, Oh, we totally don't think Peter was right about slavery. We totally don't think Paul was right about divorce or we think divorce is different now than it was then or something. And these are like signposts to the fact that, Oh, like maybe we're not, Maybe this is not a rule book. Uh, maybe it is an example of the church, like trying to love God as time goes along. But you could also go the route you're going, or like where I think Greg Boyd kind of goes this route of like, hey, we have to really be, we just really have to be consistent here if we're going to use this as our normative text. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And and but the the interesting part was when we were getting affirmed for being out of the affirming yeah, or not yeah. affirming business from from gay folks. And so, yes, I think there are some, and we've had some people confront us and, and leave because I, I've just not said, hey, yes, of course, we're affirming. Um, but we've had this very interesting community build up of people who are non-affirming and people who are affirming, and they're in line together for and, the Eucharist. And do you allow gay or LGBTQ people to like serve and yeah. lead? Okay. Yeah. So, because that's but, sometimes but we the do problem it, but too. But we do it. But we do it based on their heart for for God and their heart right. for Jesus. We don't do it based on. I mean, we we would disqualify um, all sorts of people from leadership. Like there, we have we have some folks in our community that are very aggressive, and um, and you know we have we would take a different approach with them. In the same way, if you had somebody who was just gonna who was just gonna pick at us and you know crusade against uh gay people i mean we we wouldn't give them the time of day so we're very interested right. in peacemaking not yeah. peacekeeping which is a far different thing as you know and peacemaking requires people to live in this tension so so do do the do the lgbtq folks in our community have to give something absolutely they do you're pointing that out but so do the so do the non-affirming folks they have to give something too right like for and, instance if there is a lesbian teaching their children sunday school they have to be okay with that right or, or, you know, one of the things we do when we um, recruit for uh, positions in our church, you know, we, we say, listen, if, if our target audience are pre and post Christians, um, for us, you can't have a flinch factor. You, you can't, you know, mm. if two dads show up with a kid. And so we actually have to de-church some of our folks yeah. to say, we're going to treat them, unless you're interviewing the divorced mom. Um. Uh, then right. we're going to treat them the way that we treat everybody else, which is they're welcome, and they're welcome at the table. Yeah. And and we found we found a very eclectic tribe willing to live in that. Yeah. 
and wow. and that's bro i just think i i think it's remarkable but a pod the podcast has done a lot of that work for us so it's not so yeah. you're, you're the people who've been with us know kind of where we're we're what we're trying to get at we're not trying to be wishy-washy i have an i have a definite opinion on the issue um i've spoken a lot about sexuality but but we just think this is this is one of those things where enough really good intelligent God-fearing Christian people are disagreeing on this that um, at, at some point you have to make room for the disagreement around the table, you know? And the analogy of, you know, if one of my three kids um, was gay, I mean, what do you do? Do you, do you cut them off? No, we're family. You know, we sit at the table, we hash it out, we disagree, we, you know, I mean, whatever it is, um, right. but we stay family together. So, so that's been an interesting part of our journey has been, um, you know, again, and back to the, how the Eucharist can hold some of these disagreements in ways that a teaching can't or personality can't or preferences can't. So that's what that's, we're learning just so much in this space because we don't have a lot of, we don't have a lot of um, other communities and, yeah, we're looking at right. uh, to try to, to, to make this up. But, but our folks have been amazing, particularly from the LGBTQ community who, you know, it would be much easier just to not, you know, to skip that part and uh, to just go to affirming churches. So it's been it's been good. Anything you want to add? Uh, no, I don't have anything to add to that. I mean, it, that's it, like you said that. Well, now I'm adding. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, that's been the walk, you know, going into this when we first I mean, it must have been like month two going into this. And we sat down and like, I don't know. What should we do? And we were like. What did we really were like, what did Jesus do? You know, it's like he didn't say prop eight. Yes, prop eight. No, you know, he didn't say affirming, non affirming. And obviously it's kind of some of the affirming argument is like, well, Jesus never talked about it, but you don't use that then to be affirming. You know, it's rather than like, well, no, we walk into it where it's like we talk about both. We don't discount them. We just talk about both. And can you critique both? Right. Can you critique both sides? And obviously both sides need critiqued, right? Yeah. So Jesus wouldn't come. I mean, it's exactly what you said about Father Bloom or... or, Yeah, Anthony um, Bloom, yeah. Anthony Bloom. Um, that, That idea that nobody, we come into the ravishing love of God and nobody escapes without something. And so we're just not going to prioritize because uh, I've just learned. I mean, you get people into the sphere of the spirit of God, the community of God, the word of God, and, and the sacraments. Who knows what God's going to do, right? We just don't order their sanctification for them. So um, there's so much there's so much going on in my sanctification. I, I have hardly you know any room left over to worry about anyone else's. <laughs> so it's Dan. It's been an interesting thing because we are trying to depolarize and reconstruct yeah. in this space very, very tangibly um, around some of these issues. Women in leadership, right? We let women preach and and women um, lead in all capacities. And- See, that's that's interesting. That strikes me as an issue you can't you can't withhold on like you can with affirmation. Yes, right. You yeah, couldn't. You, eat- you couldn't have a private view that God did not want women to, to preach and then let them like, that would be, you'd be being, uh, untrue to yourself or your convictions if you did that. Right. Right. So that's interesting. That's, that's one where you just sort of had to make a call. Yeah. Yes, exactly. For the community. Yeah. 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 Whereas this one, we don't make a call for the community. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You got it. And, and, and that's a tough, you know, that's a tough because we're held accountable 
for our leadership of the community. So what calls, you know, so you either overpack it or underpack it. Um, you overpack so many doctrines that you become a fence, you know, a fenced in organization. Our view is, no, no, we want to be center focused and we want to, you know, the, uh, the old analogy is that you either can keep cattle in by building a fence or by building a well. Yeah. And so, right. and so we, we want to be well builders. So we're just, we're just, marinating in Jesus. And the thing that's so funny, Dan, is our people are incredibly responsive and they write, we have this prayer wall and they put like prayer thoughts, requests, comments in and, and the stuff that God's doing in them without us having to talk about it has just been remarkable because we're not a big, like here are three applications, you know, for this week or, you know, um, here's what you do next or how we don't ask the how to questions. We just ask the man, here, here's how beautiful Jesus is sort of thing. And it's it's been remarkable what, what God's doing in people without us having to lead and shape the community beyond the, yeah, the well that we're building. Yeah. It's almost like if you take penicillin, uh, your infections end up going away. It's amazing. <laughs> like and, if you treat the root like cause, that. if you treat the root cause, the symptoms go away on their, like that just, your body works that way, right? Yes. But if you well, just reconstruction. take ibuprofen for your headache but you have your or your throbbing finger which is throbbing because of an infection the yeah, ibuprofen right. is not going to actually take it away right. Right. like mike, mike has a, an interesting articulation like he does this in conversations and counseling of just identifying the difference between you know what's symptom and then what's the thing behind the thing right you know and it quickly often when he identifies like well that's symptomatic so it's just but but quickly calling that stuff out immediately kind of compels you to think Okay, if this is a, if my behavior is a symptom, then what is really the heart posture? What is really the orientation that I'm stuck in that's causing that to happen? Like, you know, we've kind of been really um, hard on the idea that like, you know, faith following isn't behavior management, you know, and us just figuring out 10 ways to solve your anxiety, right. you know, and that kind of going at right. that kind of stuff. But rather if like, if Jesus truly is this reorienting cure all, then why, why are we, um, so slow to be excited to actually talk about how radical, how contrary and how amazing and beautiful he was every single weekend for the rest of our, you know, life. It just, to me, right. it seems like what well, we, you know, anyways, we, we try yeah. to distinguish between the gospel of Paul and the gospel of Jesus, yeah. at least the way it's presented. Paul and Jesus preach the same thing um, to radically different audiences, but it's been so interpreted through the Reformation. And this is where John and I would go round and round, right? About, yeah. um, uh, you know, the Paul that we've got isn't the Paul that was Paul. Um, uh, but we've been handed a gospel of Paul that most naturally leads us to talk about what happens after we die. Whereas the gospel of Jesus hardly mentioned it. Um, well, you and John, John's more of a, uh, NT right new perspective guy. So you might not disagree. Oh, he is. Okay. Good. Yeah, good. Okay. 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 Fantastic. Yeah. Cause I think that's been the gift of those guys has been to say, yeah. Hey, Paul was a lot more Jesus-y than I think anyone realized. And a lot more Jewish. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's yeah. yes. That's what I mean. Um, so anyway, man, it's been it's been an interesting journey for us. And so when we find people like you, who are trying to occupy that same space, um, who are honest about their own biases and are willing to be critiqued in the same way we're critiquing everything else, I think that's a really refreshing thing. That's why we wanted to to talk to you and well i appreciate that but it's easier to do it uh, about politics on a podcast than it is week in week out in a church setting where people's <laughs> people feel like their very souls are on the line yeah right 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 but but yet yeah i feel like we couldn't do the podcast without that 
Yeah. Like it's just too easy to take shots at the failures of the church. Um, with politics, man, you could totally do that. I, I, I would have no problem. You don't. You, know, you don't. You're not saying that I need to run for office to, <laughs> oh, in I, order to be in order to have a clear conscience. Correct. Right. Correct. Although I think it's more open to you now than it ever has been. I think the bar oh, is gosh. so low that. Um, <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. You know, Dwayne Johnson is good news for us. Speaking of the bar being low, I'd really like to talk about um, white evangelicals and Trump. Uh, from both of our perspectives. Okay, good. Can I? I got to pee though, really quick. Do it. I'll be, <laughs> we'll, we'll, I'll be one minute. Okay. He's he's drinking. He's drinking coffee, and he's in Seattle, and oh, so yeah. we're just gonna kill some time. Yeah. So um, ducks so, one. Oh boy, <laughs> that is killing some time. Absolutely. Oh my word. So, uh, brothers and sisters, you know, we wanted you to introduce, we wanted you to be introduced to Dan, to the reconstruct podcast. Cause we know some of you are living in that space. Depolarize was really interesting. Who else has he had on depolarize? Do you remember? Cause you listened to, I think. Yeah. I've listened to it a bunch. I, you know, I, I'm not gonna be able to drop names cause a lot of them are political figures that, oh, that are in it. a lot of different political parties. But I think Dan's done such a fantastic job of bringing people from both sides of the field and bringing compelling conversations. And, and likewise, Dan's done a great job of kind of sitting in the middle and pushing back like and dan's kind of approach hasn't been like well how do i'm going to be an independent and push back it's just like there's some moderate middle ground here where we we must find some kind of commonplace on what to do with this country but how do we how what do we find terms on agreement yes um and so he's i've I've really respected that that's the posture that he sat in and so hey look he's back oh whoa hey there whoa did you wash no. <laughs> okay. All right. Excellent. I know what I touched. My own right. Home. Exactly. I know. Right. I know when I took a shower. Um, do you guys have time to do another f- uh, fifteen minutes? Okay. Yeah. And I got to yeah. go a little after eleven thirty. Um. So, white evangelicals and Donald Trump. Um, that's probably the the single biggest statistic that speaks to where american christianity is at of the last five years i would i would say that 81 percent number and uh we talk about it um a fair amount on depolarize just if it comes up with people of faith Um, but i'm really curious what your guys's experience has been because you're trying to have this middle community um and you come from you know, you guys, you're like in Ronald Reagan land, Orange County evangelicalism. <laughs> That's um, changing, but it's still, it still is true, at least in our, in the evangelical subculture, it's predominantly conservative. Yes. Yeah. And especially the baby boomer generation, I imagine yes. it's yep. still yes. very much that, that kind of mindset. Um, so what, like, how has Trump's, when that number came out, which is um, exit polls, right? The next day. So November 9th or whatever. Um, we've had four or five months with that number now, uh, maybe six. What yeah. has been the conversation amongst your podcast listeners or the members of your church? Um, just, I just, I'm interested. Yeah. Andy, you want to lead off? Uh, all right. I don't know. I mean, I could, I could say that the, the conversations we've introduced as far as, um speaking to that scene we've come from um it's we've seen 
tons of activity on both sides. You know, I mean, as far as if we look at our Facebook comments and things Mike has said on Twitter, I mean, it's people accusing us of drinking the liberal Kool-Aid to, you know, libtards to, and immediately it's, it's all the yeah. false dichotomy type of stuff. The second you bring up a conversation that, that demands it, you're suddenly you're accused of an identity. You know, and so it's like, that's, I think what's been fascinating for us is seeing is actually maybe the illumination of seeing how much that identity has played such a large role in how people see um, their morals play out. At least for me, I think that's, that's what I've seen, like not so much seeing, I've kind of looked past the fact that, okay, you're for Trump, but then realizing how much more of your identity is wrapped up in all the stuff around that, that isn't really playing through in your Jesus following. And that's been the more that's compelling it. conversation for me. Yeah, that's the conversation. Yeah. Is that people have been so wrapped up in politics that they're willing to compromise the beauty of Jesus uh, to make their point. So, so you find for, that on the right and the left? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Totally. Can you give me so, an example of each? Sure. Um, you don't have to so name t- names if you don't want to. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Um, so we take questions in. Um, every people text, whatever. I mean, anything they hear in a teaching, anything they're singing. And um, so right after the election, we got a bunch of um, anti-Trump questions. And so we did a whole, and then, and then we got some immigration questions. So I did a whole teaching on immigration. We had some people walk out, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I, I was confronted by somebody who, um, loves Trump and, um, felt like I wasn't being fair to her side and, and, um, because I was airing those questions, but the Trump supporters didn't have questions. So I was only airing the concerns about Trump, right, right. uh, in the community. I wasn't doing both sides, uh, justice. There weren't a um, whole lot of questions to the pastor, like after Obama got reelected by Obama voters. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> those are not exactly. the people moving to Canada and, and worry. Right. right? Yeah. Exactly. So, so, uh, but there was this sensitivity to the fact that it felt like something was being advocated from stage and this person felt comfortable enough to come up and say, Hey man, this is, I I wish you just frame this a little differently. Um, And so I thought that was a really interesting uh, dynamic that went on in our community. Um, I even had, (laughs) we had a dear friend um, resign uh, from our board because um, I was I was being critical of the evangelicals' support of Trump. I was just saying, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites, right? Hillary's got character flaws, but Trump's okay, and he's God's candidate. And so I was just throwing a fit, and we lost, and we were getting so much blowback on social media and name-calling and all of this sort of thing. And I wasn't even critiquing Trump. I was just critiquing the fact that here were a bunch of evangelicals saying this is God's candidate and then yeah. critiquing Hillary for character flaws. Uh, I just thought that was a, a fascinating yeah, sort right. of thing. So so we saw it, it. We saw it in both directions. We saw the community trying to hang together where people were asking questions legitimately. How do I am fearful? How do I live in this? Yeah. Um, and then the the Trump supporters in the room going, "Hey, the, what you know? Wh- why do you? Why are you giving this so much airtime?" So what was fascinating was that the point that really began to stick in the community was the fact that our politics had become more important. So, so for instance, on social media, you see the left and the right flaming each other. Um, 
on a Christian post in Christ's name with scripture. And you, you know, I wasn't moderating. I just throw something out and then I just check back in later. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and so we saw this ugliness, right. That everyone yeah. is seeing on social media towards each other, where, where the exact thing the Eucharist was supposed to remind us of has been pushed away. And instead now my rightness or wrongness about how the kingdom of the world should be run has now taken over my unity with a brother or sister of a different, uh, belief about how the kingdom of the world should be run. And so right. that was the thing that got a, a huge amount of traction, uh, in our community and in the podcast was we kept coming at the difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking and how you, you like around Thanksgiving, how do you share a meal with somebody that you passionately do not agree with? Right. So it, it's been, it, it's been another test case like the LGBTQ community of whether or not this actually is, it can be held together in this sort of depolarized, you know, reconstructed space. You know, earlier you were talking about, um, when Jesus was alive eating with a Pharisee or a zealot and a tax collector. And it, it struck me that like, that's kind of like an ACLU lawyer and an, and an immigration agent. Yes. Today. Yeah. Yes. And yes. if, and like what a vision for the kingdom of God that you could be at table and have those people could, could come to the table and, and speak about how they each might do their jobs most effectively. Yes. Yes. Oh my exactly. gosh. Like that's immigration see, that's the agents new humanity. Who, yeah, like immigration agents who don't <clears throat> aren't like working through subsumed anger issues and taking it out on the poor and lawyers who are uh compassionate for for those that they are even suing and right. and and seeing it through their eyes and and then even more effectively representing their clients as a result of that. I mean, it's it's hard to kind of <laughs> get all that stuff in your mind, but I bet you there are ICE agents and lawyers who are friends and do do this. Yep. It's not like it doesn't exist in the world. In fact, That's right. cop shows are always about, you know, the, the <laughs> DA and the defense lawyers are actually getting drinks with each other at the end of the night. Um, there's, there's a bit more of a moral heft here, but uh, it can happen. And shouldn't it be the church where it happens? I mean, That's yes. it. And, and the Eucharist and, and sort of the, this is where I, where I want to talk about identity, you know, our identity as loved right. children of God should be able to overrule our political and, and even like our cultural and social identities. Uh, but it's That's difficult. Right. And those identities are in there. They're in their yeah. good. And yes. we, we spend a lot of mental energy to defend against them being changed or challenged. That's right. All of us yep. do. That's right. Right. So, so the psychology of how you hold belief, I mean, everything you were referencing early, that comes into play here. And, and so for us, you know, you could, whoa, <laughs> that's my cat, Lola. Come here. <laughs> oh my, of course he has a cat. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's kind of, I don't know. She kind of whines a lot. She's great. No. Though. No, so I, I, I'm just making the, the same point um, again about when when you get confronted with Jesus, um, the real thing, in an unfiltered, unvarnished way, um, even the politic question, you know, quickly goes out the window. And so the thing that's been the most encouraging for us is what what, you know, instead of building a church on homogeneity, um, to yeah. try to build a church on something else has been really, really now we're not as diverse as I'd love it. And, you know, so on, so on, so on, but we're way more than I've ever been. 
um, in a, in a community I've been a part of. And so it's been really, really interesting. That's why, that's why we love the space you're in. We're trying to do that too. And, um, you know, cause there are enough podcasts that are just doing deconstruction, right? Here are the big questions, here are the scholars that can help us deconstruct, but there's just not enough work for my kids, um, and the faith they're going to grow into, um, that can't just be the remnants of, you know, whatever's left standing after we've flamed everything. Yeah. So, so love it. Great. <laughs> well, so where, uh, so where can people questions? find you? Do you have any more? Yeah. Okay. I was just saying, if you have more questions for me, um, People can find me in a number of places. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Dan K O C H Dan Coke. Um, the both podcasts are up wherever podcasts are listened to. Depolarize and reconstruct. Um, Depolarizepodcast.com, reconstructpodcast.com. I think that's basically it, man. That's awesome. And Bro, then it, for my listeners, where can people find oh, yeah. you? Yeah, go ahead, Andy. Oh, yeah. So you could, uh, website is voxpodcast.com. Uh, in addition, you can check out the church, which is Vox Community, and that's voxoc.com. Uh, two podcasts available. This one, which is Vox Podcasts uh, with Mike Erie on iTunes and wherever you can find podcasts. And the other one is just uh, Vox Community. And yep, on Twitter at uh, the Vox Podcast, T H E Vox Podcast. Wow. And um, that's a lot. I know that's a we're lot. We're doing too we, much. We, we do we do too much. We've what been do you do for work? Confusing. Slow your What roll, do you do, guys? Dan? We couldn't figure out. What do you? How do you make money? Right, oh, you're a musician. Yeah, I, I do commercial. What else you do? Commercial music. So I'm a commercial composer. I write oh, nice. music for licensing. If people are in that world, you can hire me at dancoke.net. That's what I'm talking about. I don't talk about that quite as much on the shows. Yeah, hey, that's awesome. I, it's yep. my tent making, man. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, yeah. Fun yeah. tidbit. Like, cause Dan. Um, we, Dan and I kind of come from similar music backgrounds. So my band did actually open for his band, Sherwood. I mean, they had to have been married for seven. I mean, probably this was almost 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So up in San Luis Obispo at like this uh, pizza brewery place. Like I can't remember what it was called, but yep. um, slow yeah, brew, then, man. And, yeah. yeah, that's right. That's what yep. was slow brew. And then uh, we actually did like two other shows with you guys at like churches in the area so we we yeah. opened a couple church shows and then played with them at this random brew. so it's oh a really goodness. funny full circle 10 years later full to come circle, man. To it, but it's cool yeah well and cool. bad christian guys i toured with them when they were in emory 11 years ago and that's how we became friends and it's it's a yeah. bunch of us ended up in this weird right. sort of nether world of podcasting yeah absolutely very cool so anyways hey man it was it was fantastic yeah that was really great for your time Thank yep. you for sharing your guys' perspective. You guys are on the ground doing the real work. So thanks for doing that. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Of course. Ryan. Boots on the ground. We're big fans. 